our ancestors been walking, that ground has been paved for us. And that's part of the DNA healing too, is like that gene expression. There is like a, a key code that gets unlocked, you know, as we practice these ways and as we eat these certain foods and we die in these ways. And so, um, and we birth in these ways. Hi friends, welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I'm Amber Magnolia Hill, sharing with you today, episode 86, my interview with Michaela de la Mico. I am very glad that she pronounced that at the end of the interview here, because I would have said Michaela de la Mico. This is two-hour interview. It is densely beautiful, mind-expanding, heart-opening. I'm so grateful for it. I love it just gets better and better as we go along. And I love what we talked about at the end. The Patreon offerings that go along with this, there's two. One is an offering from Michaela. One is an offering from me. Michaela is offering a 50% off coupon code for two separate video teachings that are available on her website. So the website is linked below, but the coupon code will be available at patreon.com slash medicine stories for patrons at the $2 a month or above level. Thank you. I love you. The first video is a ceremonial mushroom drinking tutorial. This is how Michaela and her folks hold space when they sit with psilocybin. Um, looks incredible. And I think I'm going to need it for myself. These are both $44 on the website. So they're going to be $22 for you with this half off coupon code. The second offering is a Yoni steam guide through how to prepare a steam, how to do it, what the benefits are, integration stuff. You can read more about these on the website that is linked below. Half off coupon codes for each at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Also there is just a bonus recording I was inspired to share based on the final 20 minutes or so of this conversation where Michaela and I talk about beauty healing. And so I share two stories of really negative health impacts in my life from trying to keep up with modern beauty standards and suppressing my feminine flow. I also end up sharing about which beauty products I use. They're minimal and absolutely non-toxic. And so I link to all of those in the description there as well on Patreon. Uh, in this episode, Michaela mentions twice the recent episode that I brought back. So I just, in case anyone missed it, thought I would let you know that that's episode 85 with Sean Padraig. O'Donoghue, which is the most correct um, Irish pronunciation that I am capable of. <laughs> um, okay, that quick, that good and easy of an intro. This interview just blew my mind. And you hear me say a number of times how much I love Michaela's Instagram. So check that out too. The teachings just overflow abundantly there as well. And bless the folks bringing this medicine back into the collective consciousness. It feels so imperative to me. 
especially during these times as we stand at this crossroads um, where the human family needs so much healing, such deep, profound healing, and healing in our relationship with the earth as well, which is something that psilocybin has certainly provided for me and many others. Okay, that's it. That's good. We do talk about a Kickstarter at the end that really um, has me lit up. It's for books, two books, one about pregnancy and psilocybin use, very much looking at the science here and safety, which by the way, Michaela's ebook does as well. So we don't spend a ton of time on that in this interview because, you know, we just be like listing citations and a bunch of science terms. And that's not what this conversation is for. But in Michaela's ebook, which we mentioned, and you can find on her website and is linked below, it's called Entheogenic Earth Medicine Assisted Motherhood. All of that is cited. And a lot of the citations come from the woman who is doing this Kickstarter to bring more information forward about the use of psilocybin in pregnancy. And the second book is about psilocybin mental health and teenagers, which is an issue very close to my heart and to the heart of anyone who loves and knows teenagers, especially through COVID. So you can learn more about that at the end of the episode. And down in the show notes is the link as always. Okay, get ready. You're going to love this one. Welcome, Michaela. We have already been speaking off camera for 20 minutes. I've cried twice. And it's time to to be recording and bring this conversation to more people. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here. I wanted to begin, I was going through your Instagram and I saw this beautiful um, like wooden hoop wall hanging that someone had gifted you. And it, it was a reel. So it was like, you know, really quick, but I was wondering who the people are on that, who your people are. Ashe, um, thank you so much um, for being so vulnerable on such an amazing platform. <laughs> it just is such a testament to the authenticity in which you create space. And so really is an honor to be here and share that authentic space with you. I would love to share a little bit of my ancestry and a little bit of the stories that I come from, the medicine stories I come from. Uh, but first, I'd like to talk about the wooden hoop itself. Um, within the psilocybin space that we hold, there are many important and powerful roles and psilocybin is a great catalyzer for which to relate with each other and the elements. And so one of our dear participants and holders in our medicine ceremonies is a man named Pete and he's our fire keeper. And a fire keeper is a very esteemed role within the traditional layout of holding sacred circles. And so he, he built that beautiful hoop and gifted it to me after a rather large ceremony that we'd done after the Dia de Muerto of October, 2021. And so it only felt right that my ancestors were to be gifted that hoop. And within that beautiful sacred hoop, our ancestors from both sides of my family. So I'm a multiracial, um, black, 
Afro-Indigenous, Indigenous Mexican, Italian immigrant um, amalgamation of a love story across the many waters of the earth. Um, my mom was born and raised in the hilltops of a little town in Italy called Acca di Foggia, where she lived on a piece of land that didn't technically belong to her family. People just lived on land and no one really owned land there. And so she was raised by her beautiful grandmother, whose birthday is August 13th. My mother's birthday is August 13th. And my due date was August 13th. Um, All would have been born on Friday the 13th, which in Southern Italy is a really uh, wonderful gift. Um, And it is... Uh, a privilege to be born on that day. It's a quite a lucky day for them. So I'm grateful to have this blood in me, um, a blood that really knows the soil and that speaks to plants. And I know you spoke so beautifully on the podcast that you've just re-released about being in communion and communication with plantitas. But, you know, for that side of my family, we go back in Southern Italy far as far as we can remember. Um, there are cobblestone streets there. Everyone is related. Um, and so, you know, my mother's, my mother's mother um, is a keeper of the vines. So my mother's mother's name is Lavinia. She's still with us. My mother's father is from an olive oil family and his mother is on my altar. Um, she's a woman, like I said, raised my mother but also visited her after she died. So my mother was the first person to know she passed on because she visited her at the foot of her bed moments after she crossed over. So my mom's always been uh, gifted in that way uh, through her dreams and through her sixth sense, like her motherly sense has always been really active in my whole life. And for a long time, that really scared me. And I really resisted uh, seeing spirits and didn't really want to interact and engage with that other world because it's, I didn't have really great models for how to do that. Um, My mother always read tarot cards. And so um, growing up with my father, who's on the altar, his name was Juan Avier, he, um, is my Afro-Caribbean ancestor whose mother was adopted by a Spanish woman in El Paso, Texas. So my father and my grandmother, Guadalupe, are both on the altar as well. Um, My father is the reason I got into ancestor worship and ancestor stewardship because he passed when I was 14. I have an intimate relationship with death because I've watched the most important people in my life die in front of me. And um, the mushrooms definitely being master decomposers, given the gift of recognizing how death and the body and the soul are composted and regenerate into other parts of our lives. And so Um, My father being on the altar has been a really important um, part of my healing journey with psilocybin in not only recognizing how that was the beginning of my relationship with the ancestors, but also the unique pain and trauma I have around being divorced from the language of 
of Spanish. And not to say that Spanish is necessarily an ancestral tongue because it is still a European colonizer language, but so much of so many of my ancestors spoke only Spanish. And to have never been taught Spanish um, or to have it used as a secret language that my sister and I were never really given the opportunity to learn on purpose, you know, has actually been one of my primary motivations for sitting with psilocybin in a traditional way where the songs that we sing are in Spanish and Nahuatl which Nahuatl is the language of the Nahuas, is the Azteca. It's the language of ancient Mexico. And it's similar to the Maya. There are some key differences, but this medicine, psilocybin, they really become activated by language. And so for us um, that have this ancestry to learn the language and to actually allow the gene expression to come forward with the help of psilocybin to rewrite the way that we language our medicine circle and songs um, has been the the ancestor healing I didn't know I needed when I first started. There's also my uh, grandfather who's Afro-Caribbean radio DJ from Havana, Cuba, who gives me a lot of my Yoruba and Santaria um, persuasion because his mother was a practicing Santaria priest. And so, you know, she was be doing her chicken sacrifices in the kitchen and be, you know, doing her cowrie shells and be taking care of her community. And so her ancestry through him um, really helps me um, look at the world in a way more animated way, in a way where the rivers are alive and the ocean is our mother. And when we get fiery and strong, like we can feel that it is a an energy that's taking over our body. And it's taught me that possession isn't a scary thing, that it's a gift actually to be mounted by some of these energies and to have them work and channel through you. So um, that beautiful hoop carries really like the DNA codes, I think, for which the psilocybin work with me and helps me to keep them in tow for every ceremony. I mean, some of the pictures I have have eaten the medicine on a physical level. Um, My grandfather, Antonio, I brought him to a peyote ceremony and the abuelita gave me a piece of peyote. And because I was watching all the children, I put it in my breast and I like, you know, put it where all his, the pictures of my ancestors always go in like a little journal. And I laid the peyote down and I pressed it in and I slept with, with the pictures under my head when I, when I went to bed that night and in the morning when I opened it up, the peyote juice had left this incredible splotch all over his mouth. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess he needed to eat peyote this time. <laughs> so I really believe, and I know through experience that when we heal, you know, and invite our ancestors into heal with us, that they are also navigating and engaging in this space alongside us. Um, and I think peyote and psilocybin mushrooms, peyote in particular, being an ancestral medicine of the Southern United States and into Mexico and deeper into Mexico, 
me coming into that medicine as well as a mother's medicine, we could talk about peyote too, but is a way of reclaiming my ancestry because my grandmother, Guadalupe, was taken from her mother three days after she was born by Catholic nuns. And from what we understand, my grandmother's mother is an indigenous woman who was deemed unworthy or unrespectable and not adequate enough to raise her own daughter. And so she was taken by the Catholic church and was given. And even within my own family, we're told the story that it was like for the best, but really like my contact with peyote and these traditions is like, she was removed from a life way that would have, you know, changed the course of our entire family. So I I very much pray for her when I sit with these medicines too. And I pray to reconnect the gene codes that connect me to the peyote territory and, and our, what we've been gifted as the responsibility of ensuring that these medicines stay sacred and that they stay populated on the planet because peyote is very endangered right now. So um, thank you for asking about my family. So it was possibly the most beautifully answered question in the history of this podcast. You, you like really tied it all in, in this hoop like way. <laughs> the medicine is the circle. <laughs> the circle is the medicine. Um, oh gosh, so many pieces I want to pick apart there, but I, I'm really touched by, and you had an Instagram post about this as well. So I, you know, within a lot of medicine communities, certainly psychedelic spirituality in general, there's this emphasis on ascent, mm-hmm. um, love and light and ascension and getting higher. But you make the point that that mushrooms and psilocybin is like, it's like, it's decent medicine. It's about the soil and composting. And I, I feel like when I've taken psilocybin, it reminds me that I am animal. Mm. And I am animal and I'm of the earth. I, I could not agree more. And I was really inspired by some of the language that I'm starting to be reminded about in my journeys as a young person. I'm 27. I have a long way to go. And as I said, I stand on the Shoulders of Giants. Um, there's a great book that has um, been written by a soil scientist and a climate change expert. Just this an incredible mixed race woman. I believe she's Chinese and Irish. Her name is Dr. Erin Yujuin McMorrow, and she wrote a great book called Grounded. And it's about you know um, carbon sequestering and soil health, and honestly, the dark feminine and even within this ascension model, there is this divine feminine presence and essence that is, you know, often like marveled at and accentuated and like this goddess vibration energy and like high vibe and fuck yeah, like I'm about it. But what about, you know, the diosas and the, the energies that embody like the underworld presence? you know, and how essential 
decomposition is and these energies of like Lilith. And it's interesting. Um, it's like the, the further we get into colonization, because if we consider colonization as a temporal construct that is constantly being like, um, disembodied, you know, and so many of us are indigenizing ourselves, but it's like the further we get into colonization time, the lighter our energies get, <laughs> like physically light, color light, the, this um, ascension of Gualique, who Gualique is the dark woman of the serpent skirt. She is this primordial mother that even precedes Donansin, which is also a Nahuatl mother of the earth. And when the Virgin Mary, the Virgin Mary of Guadalupe appears, she appears European. And so it's like through these iterations and generations, like we are whitewashing our spirituality. We are whitewashing and colonizing even who we associate with, with spirit. And so this descending consciousness, it, it, it means to be reminded of the earth that we come from and the earth that we come from. And if you look at the soil, it ain't fucking white flower, baby. It's deep, nutrient dense, dark. And when I, I talk, I love entheogens, all of them. And uh, it was around the de Muerto time. And I ask for that descending consciousness because descending consciousness, ascending consciousness is simply a metaphor for the sun and the moon's dance through the year, simply this. And so as we move out of summer solstice, we start to get into descending consciousness, you know? So there's room for both. I'm not saying like we can't have one without the other. It's like, that's how we got into this imbalance to begin with. We're just reminding ourselves that descending consciousness is just as important as a journey up is a journey down is the medicine of the descending God in the Mayan temples of Tulum. There are whole Tulums dedicated to the descending God, which is the baby. The baby is the descending God because they're facing downwards into the earth. So it's like, why would we even come to earth if the plan is to get out? You know what I mean? If we can't even take care of our home planet, what the fuck are we even going to do anywhere else? So, um, as I sat around Dia de Muerto time, and we got some good education around what Dia de Muerto is. And I say Dia de Muerto, not Dia de los Muertos. That's the Spanish kind of over, you know, over um, simplification and like a direct translation, but really is Dia's, Dia's de Muerto, Days of Dead. And it's multi-days, of course. And so on one of the days, I sat for 5-MAO um, DMT. We had someone to watch my son and he wouldn't have any of it. He didn't want the popcorn. He didn't want Barney. He didn't want any of that shit. He just wanted to be with mom. And that's just the reality of having a two-year-old Scorpio son. And so I was in a room with some dear sisters and we we're smoking this five pen and they were even trying to hold him, but he wasn't even trying to do that. So he's nursing on me while I blasted off on my five pen. And wow, what a, what a dance that all was. But my ask of the medicine, because the last time I smoked it, I went into like 
fairy, like the nursery of souls in the sky is where she took me last time. And I met my daughter's spirit who's not incarnated yet, but it was good to see her and know her. I asked her to take me into the underworld. I said, I want to know where the dead live. Take me down. Take me down. I want to see what the underworld looked like. And she just took me into the soil. So I was like, oh, that's hell. That's the underworld. We've literally villainized the soil that supports all of life, which is the problem of ascending consciousness is you turn against your mother. I mean, the soil is literally the decomposed bodies of thousands of animal and human beings and insect and everything. Ashe. Descending consciousness. (laughs) So it's like the the older we get, the darker. (laughs) And and the more nourished and the less sanitary. And Mm -hmm. I think we could bring a little bit more of microbiology back. We've Mm -hmm. been in a war against the microbiome in our body, out our body, sanitation above happiness. (laughs) And life is messy and life is beautiful and life is woven by this mycelial network. And that's honestly part of descending consciousness is how do microorganisms and the mycelia organize themselves and the consciousness that they offer, you know, and part of the descending, you know, consciousness is about learning from mushrooms very intimately in a way that we become like mushrooms ourselves and mimic the way that they function and share information and data with one another without borders mm-hmm. and um, without fear of not having enough. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, my oldest daughter's name is Mycelia, and I went into labor with her on August 13th. She was born on August 14th. And it, I think we both became mothers at 25 as well, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is... <sighs> I just, I'm so, I I don't even have language for how it hits me when I hear you speak about integrating entheogenic earth medicines with motherhood. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, of course, oh gosh, of course. And, oh, fear of how the overculture is going to view that. Um, okay. So I, you know, I don't even, I don't know this question yet. And this is like a basic early question. How did you get into this? When did you start using psychedelics? And at what point did you realize, oh, I can this, you know, motherhood. Right. So, um, I had my first LSD journey at 19, definitely broke me wide open. Also an ancestral medicine, uh, ergot, right? Contaminated rye wheat. I call LSD a plant medicine because of that. And because- uh, It's derived from this fungus that grows on wheat. In Europe. And it's like, look at how many people, like white people like LSD. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's ancestral. It really is. And um, truthfully, um, it was through midwifery that we even found LSD because midwives were giving, uh, women that were in stalled labor, three intact ergots and pushing labor forward contraction. Yeah. Plant. So 
This is where Albert Hoffman is deriving his psychedelic education from is from the birth world. That's right. So from uteruses, how is there ever a separation? Anyway, um, so yeah, I had my LSD experience and then I found psilocybin shortly after. And I don't know if anyone's taken LSD, they might also feel the same way, but I felt like after my big journey, like I really wanted to just get my hands like in the ground. Cause it's very heady, could be very synthy. And so my body didn't, uh, really respond well. Like I felt like I couldn't do that every day, but when I met psilocybin, um, Oh my gosh. She just called me right back home. And she said, I am so glad you found us because we've been waiting on you. And in such a motherly way, just fucking wrapped arms around me. People were like, don't look in the mirror. I did. And for the first time, like recognized the beauty that I am beyond what people had ever said about me. I was, you know, the survivor of really intense bullying So I never knew that about myself. I never felt that way. I called my mom. Mom healing began day one. And I eventually sat for my mom on her 50th birthday, uh, gave her her dose. And that was an incredible uterine bloodline healing right then and there for just her to get the aha moment and out of her suffering, you know, really find a sense of thriving. She's since cleared her alcoholism and no longer takes antidepressant medication because she microdoses every other day. So she has weaned herself off of, um, antidepressants that she's been on for like 10 years. Um, so I just like honor and praise to my mom. Cause she really is like a living Testament of the power of this medicine for mothers. Um, I became pregnant with my beautiful partner of five years. Um, we moved, I moved down to, uh, San Diego to be with him and I was on an LSD journey. I took two, two tabs. It was a little much. So I called him and was like, could you sit for me? Cause this is a bit much. And so while he slept, I continued to vision with him while he was sleeping and realized this is the place that we're going to create life. I didn't even know that's why I came down here, but this land is fertile. And so is this relationship. And it was like in the LSD mindset that we created that vision. And so I really, it's been with me every step of the way and entheogen one or the other. And so, um, when I finally became pregnant with, with Martin, um, we conceived in new Orleans, funny enough. Uh, we had a wild night. I flew out the next morning. I tracked my cycle and I knew he shouldn't have, but I said it was okay. But (laughs) Sometimes we let it happen in the heat because there's someone behind us that's like, it's okay. I'm like, okay. So I flew and I landed in NOLA, conceived there on Valentine's Day, the day 14th, and then flew back like two days later, pregnant. And I just thought that was always really interesting that Martin decided that that was his window and like that was the touch point for his soul and he's got a musician's soul and dances and my grandfather was a radio dj in havana cuba and was an avid dancer and a singer and an organ player and so to just watch how these ancestors don't come and live in the stars they come through our body is always giving me chills and just a sense of the mycelial nature of not lineage, but like the constellation and the webs of families kind of recirculating. Cause really there is no 
single use in the universe, not even souls. <laughs> so um, I became pregnant and I was suffering with alcoholism like a mother. I definitely was a heavy drinker and my partner's Irish. So beer and whiskey is like how we built a lot of our relationship. And I'd still be sitting with plant medicine, but, you know, I was faced with this like, well, what am I going to choose? Like, am I going to continue journeying through alcohol? Gestating, that's not possible. So I asked the, I asked psilocybin and I said, would you be a helpful ally to not just carry this gestation, but to also help me clear up this last kind of piece of bullshit that I am still carrying around because it really has a powerful way of, you know, answering our questions. And so once I really got the okay from them, I went to my abuelita, which our abuelita, um, she's from Jalisco, Mexico. She is a peyote keeper in the Wiradica tradition. She's part of a community of people who was eating psilocybin at age three is like kind of when they get started with that. And they do abuelita doses, abuela doses, which are like a microdose just to introduce the child over time to this medicine so they can you know, it's integrated. It's not anything, it's chamomile, you know, it's like <laughs> something that is a part of the medicine cabinet, right? And it is held in a lot of respect and and, and sacredness. So I went to her and I said, Awalitha, I'm pregnant, but I, I'm feeling really called to continue sitting with this medicine has been so beneficial for me. And she said, come up, we're going to do a circle. And she dosed me my first psilocybin dose as a pregnant person. And that really gave me the extra push and support to know that I had uh, access to someone of generations before me that have an indigenized perspective about this medicine and that my intuition was in a good place and that she could kind of lay that, that gateway. And she was my gatekeeper for that. And so she walked me through the gate. She didn't hold the gates closed. She walked me through that gate and um it's been a wrap after that. There's also some great teachers like Ayana Ii, who's a Hati Kalindi Ii's beautiful wife, who's connected to that great web that you'd mentioned about, you know, the entheogen midwives and everything. And she really believes that psilocybin is a crucial component of all parts from conception, as you know, to <laughs> pregnancy, birth itself, and postpartum. So, I mean, I just, it was in that moment that I got accepted by the dark mother and she's like, I exist everywhere and I'm supporting you at every stop. And this continuum never closes or ends. And that's what I really see a lot of women suffer with is they come and ask and they're like, I've had a relationship with psilocybin and now I stop because I'm pregnant. And I'm like, why, why did you do that? They're like, well, I don't know if it's, safe or not. And I'm like, well, how beneficial has it been in your life thus far? So why would it not be beneficial to your child? And there's some science on that, that maybe we can get into later, but I think people really just want to know how safe of a substance this is throughout. We know it's benefits, but like, does it have an impact? And truly what we've seen is it doesn't have a negative impact, like what people might imagine. And no one's trying to do research on it. So this is a call out to the scientists like, yo, pay attention because 
the options that are available to mothers is causing more harm than psilocybin ever would. <clears throat> like SSRIs? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like SSRIs and, opi- and opioids mm-hmm. that are often giving during epidural. Mm. Right. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you were referring there to the fact that my oldest, Mycelia, was conceived on psilocybin. Uh, yeah, I was just so wide mm-hmm. open. You know, I just, I remember that night we were in the Redwood Forest outside Santa Cruz and um, of, of course she came through. We weren't fucking ready. You know, we weren't planning that by any means, um, but it was just such a yes from the moment we realized what had happened. Um, so this, let's talk about the stoned ape theory. I, you know, I've loved this theory for decades as many people have. And I was scrolling your Instagram and saw your little reel about it. And it was truly like a jaw drop moment for me. Like, of course. Um, So, you know, maybe tell people what it is and then your addition to it. So funny enough, Terrence McKenna in his book, Food of the Gods, he never ever called it stoned ape hypothesis. It became kind of like a, like a dumbed down of the overarching idea that, he credits this massive leap in consciousness that happened 40,000 years ago to primitive man's uh, contact with psychedelics so predominantly in like the archaeological evidence is, you know, we were just kind of animals. We were human animals, but then suddenly culture explodes. around. Boom. We, for the first time began living in a world of our own creation, like symbolically and physically, we started to manipulate reality and like what the fuck happened 40,000 years ago that triggered this. And so Terrence McKenna and food of the gods says this is a hypothesis it probably could never be proven but maybe it could um that it was uh there was like a shortage of food which forced animals and maybe at that time there was some agriculture like cattle like living in community with humans as well and that they came in contact with this the sacred cow who is heteru who is um just so many of these old primal energies, like working with the scarab in ancient Egypt, like there is a long tradition of psilocybin use in ancient chem and Egypt as well. And so it's an ancestral medicine for black people all over the African continent, which is amazing too. So 40,000 years ago, before the migration from Africa into Europe and Asia, um, we have psilocybin over and over and over and over again. And what does that produce in a population? Of course, mutations change, epigenetics change. What a lot of these scholars and in the psychedelic field kind of mention is that um, there's like adaptive abilities changing among like the male population that in smaller doses, it increases like visual acuity and makes you better hunters that you are uh, like more sexually like like viral and um, virility is enhanced and enhanced cooperation. So making them like more attractive mating partners, which I think is a cute view. (laughs) However, I think the truth of the matter is it's happening in both ways and it's happening. Yeah. Maybe guys are looking a little bit more attractive, but who passes down epigenetic traits from parent to offspring 
it's moms. And it's not just on a chemical level because serotonin has and plays an important role in the communication system between mother and baby. It is a neurotransmitter in that it is a communication vehicle and it plays a vital role in implantation, first of all. So actually having serotonin readily available and increased amounts of serotonin uh, indicates better bioavailability of a placenta and better communication between mother and baby to dilate or constrict blood vessels in order to get food through. So it is serotonin is like the, the connection between placenta, mother and baby and psilocybin introduces or mimics serotonin to the serotonin receptors. So if you have serotonin living in copious and in suitable amounts in the brain, in the gut, within the bloodstream, you have better bioavailable children. So you have a more successful pregnancies. You're having increased cooperation, not just among men hunting, but among women creating culture and sharing resources. And you have happy, sustained, balanced, um, cortisol low gene expressions that are now being expressed in personality from the mother to the baby. So there have been some other podcasts that I've talked about postpartum depression and who really suffers in postpartum depression. And it's honestly kids because if mom's alone and stressed and suffering, the only person who's there to really receive that stress and anxiety is the child. And then that sets the child up for a world, a growing up that they got to, they got to heal. And so the stoned ape hypothesis really has kind of missed the mark, in my opinion, on the vital role of mothers ingesting medicine from conception through pregnancy, postpartum, breastfeeding, and beyond, and bringing children into psilocybin. You think they were tripping? You think they were like, oh, is my kid too young? Because that's always a question. Oh, like how young is too young? And it's like, well, if you were born out of psilocybin, like negative nine months, like, you know, so um, it has marked every rite of passage is the integration of a particular plant medicine. Because really these rites of passages are gateways to next steps and levels of not just your own personal consciousness, but your role within community. Mm -hmm. And so um, the stone ape hypothesis is like, um, I just think it's great. place to begin this conversation of mothers um, reintegrating psilocybin into all parts of gestation for the possibility that if psilocybin brought us into the, the world of the symbolic and that huge leap in consciousness forward, perhaps that is what is necessary for this leap in consciousness that we're going to be asking for for this, this next step of our human evolution with the world and its, its coming challenges. Mm -hmm. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's sort of, 
um, maybe lessening cortisol or stress and strengthening serotonin or happiness and bonding. And also what I see as so important with psilocybin use is um, neuroplasticity, creativity, Mm -hmm. intelligence, curiosity. Mm. And um, looking at the way that just education is created in our world and how children are reared up, you know, um, to pretty much get lost uh, of their creativity and to be kind of like uh, coerced into a thinking mind or a mind that operates in a particular neurotypical way, you know, and with this invitation of increased serotonin that definitely disrupts our participation within this system, but instead grants us other gifts too. Like it might sound a little weird, but telepathic communication, you know, we still don't even know how these ancient sites were built. We don't even understand these monolithic structures. And because we don't, we're not in the mind of the people who constructed them anymore. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. we've been actually in a de-evolution process for a long time Mm -hmm. and um, been just kind of forced into a rigid way of understanding the nature of things. So, you know, these ancestral medicines, as I said, beyond and older than ancient Kemet, but deeper and further into Africa. And then there's this great book called They Came Before Columbus, but there is an African presence in South America before Columbus's ships ever came through. And we see that in the Olmec, in the Olmec heads. And they're very Africanoid. And so if there is a relationship with psilocybin in that region of the world and psilocybin and mushrooms are the oldest organisms that we really have on the face of the earth that predate and set the foundation for all the other plant medicines. So it's like, this is like the great, great, great grandmother plant medicine. We call Madre Ayahuasca grandmother, but psilocybin and even the amanitas like they are the great 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 they are the kualique they're the tlatikutli like they are the ancient ones and so they are moving through south america and their integration on a whole societal level is what is creating the great civilizations that we currently do not understand so it would be nice to return to a frame of consciousness where we can connect mothers into leadership conversation because of how important the role is within mother in the society and creating great civilizations. Um, Great civilizations, they rise and fall. And it's always the patriarchal ones that rise and fall. The empires of Rome, we're in an English empire right now. Like this is the extension of the English empire. And the first thing that really had to happen was the removal of women from land Mm -hmm. in order to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. And now we're living in this culture where mothers are removed from their babies at birth. And there's so much disruption happening in our institutions between parents and children. Mm -hmm. And like, we know we're mammals, we're mammals. We're meant to be together. We're meant to be bonded. Mm-hmm. This is this is how our greatest gene expression comes forward. And I, I want to mm-hmm. talk more about gene expression. You had written to me, it is the deepest gift to remember and shift my gene expression to my truest state. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, like, 
yes, that's what we're here for. But what does that mean? And how are these plant medicines helping you do that? I spoke a little bit about it earlier when you asked about ancestry. And a lot of us talk about, I want to heal my ancestors. <laughs> I want to heal my ancestors. I want to break ancestral trauma. I want to clear ancestral trauma. In my view, the way that these medicines have really showed me clearing ancestral trauma is to return to ancestral ways. To accentuate the beauty that our ancestors would have seen in the world, whether that's making our own food from scratch or growing our own food or returning to our ancestral languages. So particularly within the psilocybin space and this um, can be shared for anyone of any culture. We all have a mother tongue. Not all of us are English. And so what we can, and as you mentioned, this neuroplasticity becomes available to us is by practicing our ancestral languages under the presence of psilocybin. Oh yeah, you said something about that earlier that like the psilocybin, I forget how you word it, but it like mm-hmm. is activated in the presence of language or I, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you more about that. So this is part of the world that is created 40,000 years ago. There was no written language, right? There was oral tradition. And so uh, in those, in that shift, we actually see the beginnings of the creation of two-dimensional art. This is our first language. And you've seen those beautiful um, cave paintings with like, the hand and then they're blowing like pigment all around the hand and they've got these beautiful animals and figures of, and that's how we know that they're tripping in these caves is because these animals don't exist. Like these, these animals aren't animals that you would have found like within the records. And so it's like through language and naming and vibration and sound that like life begins to keep a record of itself. And so we keep an ancestral record through our names, for example, right? Like my ancestral healing line is, you know, myself and then my father, a big ancestral healing connection with languages, the languages our ancestors choose to call themselves and mending the broken bones of who they thought they needed to be in order to be successful. Like my father, for example, who I knew as John Xavier Valentino, who went after he died, I found his birth certificate and he's been a Juan Avier his whole life. So psilocybin really with language, movement, art, music, the art, creativity, the very thing that has pretty much been pulled out of education. It's the very thing that gives everyone life and can, 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 can connects us as a community um, is the very way that our ancestors can receive messages, you know, and can be felt and can be communicated with. And so ancestral healing to me in this way with psilocybin is by reprogramming the way that my brain works with language. So there's these ideas that your human consciousness changes and different parts of your brains activate in the presence of different languages and by speaking different tongues. And so not only 
are you able to communicate and draw bridges with different peoples of different places if you understand their language, but you also have the cadence, the rhythm, the muscles in your mouth work in a different way. The cadence of your body when you're speaking these languages change the way that your body is postured. The food that you eat when you're in that place changes your genetic makeup. Your gene expression is turned on and off by foods, access to the kind of wind they have there, access to the kind of soil they have there. So language is the vehicle for which we change our entire chemical makeup. And so accessing these ancestor tongues. So when I'm singing in these ceremonies, it's just started with maybe one or two Spanish songs. And then as I started to involve myself greater, greater into the traditional community of the now some people that speak Nawa or sing in Nawa. Some of my great friends who we do songs and carry songs together and don't even get me started on the medicine of the drum. Cause that's just a whole other, that's just a whole other podcast episode right there. But, you know, to be song carrying, to be drumming for our ancestors with medicine, the drum vibrates the water cells in the body. And so it causes a very visceral reaction. I mean, we think about sound frequencies and sound therapy, the most basic and the first instrument is the drum, right? The stomping of the hands and the tapping of the feet and the knocking of our body. I mean, this is our mother's way of soothing our central nervous system. And so whenever someone is having like a hard experience through this space, we go to them and we just tap them on the back and we hum. Mm -hmm. And that's a mother's way of being in medicine space. You know, it's the same way that we would sue the baby is the same way that we would sue someone having a dramatic episode on psilocybin. I would say I've seen 300 pound men be rocked like a baby in medicine space on five grams and just be, you know, just like as content as, as a cat in the sun. So it's like, I just um, recognize that these ancestral bonds that we have to the most basic and most primitive ways of relating, going back to the source code, which our mothers lay out, our mother's mothers lay out and returning to the ancestral tongues and the languages that this medicine understands, like as your daughter has some ancestry with the Mazatec for her to even learn enough to say a prayer to the ancestors as you, you know, on that beautiful podcast, I'm so happy you brought it back, but there was so much about language even there. Mm -hmm. It shapes the way that our brain functions. So if we can't have a brain similar to our ancestors, how are we ever going to communicate with them? Mm-hmm. And so I speak in all kinds of languages when I'm on medicine and it's much, much easier because as you said, neuroplasticity is available and uh, the thinking mind is turned off. If I fuck up, like I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to keep trying and trying. And after hundreds of medicine sits, like finally beginning to have a real grasp on some of the ancestor languages that my people would have spoken. So, um, it's tremendous how much language can do, how much involving oneself with music and movement our ancestors would have done, feet on the soil, stomping, breathing in the air, returning to the drum, you know, and these are all held within these mushroom containers. And that's why I feel that this therapy model is not going to do a lot 
for a lot of people. Like it's an amazing molecule. So you're going to have brown groundbreaking results no matter what, but is the whole community going to have be healed on an exponential rate? If one person is asked to pay two or $3,000 for a session, mm-hmm. or can you touch more people by involving involving creativity and maybe a $200 seat for each person to come and sit 15, 16 people as our ancestors would have done big gatherings, all of us eating medicine in the moonlight, all of us together. That's how our ancestors would have healed it. So it's like, why are we going to try to approach it any other way? Mm -hmm. And mothers and the women and the children all involved and in the center. (laughs) There's you might be aware, like a big reckoning happening right now in the sort of above ground mainstream, whatever psychedelic healing movement about abuse within those one-on-one mm-hmm. therapeutic sessions. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's pretty bad and it's pretty rampant. And so as I'm hearing you speak of this, I'm like, well, that, you know, that's not going to be present in a group of so many people. And it just totally makes sense that that's going to be but doing it in community is the way that humans have always done it. Ashe. It's the way that we've always done it. And there are initiation systems for which people, they rise into, you know, their ranks. But this is also a hierarchy model. So the way that I am suggesting it is within a matriarchal model mm-hmm. and is within the model of the of the descending consciousness, which is the mushroom consciousness, which is centering the circle. Um, as the great equalizer for each and every person, you know? Yeah. Um, how, how big is this community? Like, is this an ever expand? How many people are stepping into this? What potential do you see? How much pushback do y'all get? <laughs> Nothing but love and support. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but love and support. It's rather small, um, which I love, which this grassroots regional therapy, like like this grassroots regional community model is, I feel, going to be the sustainable model for how entheogens are spread across the globe. Because if you consider the tribal community like that's how it would have been done is like who's regional who can come who can be present and um how to sit together through the changing of time is really important so i don't see very much longevity in myself as a practitioner to ever sit people one on one like every weekend every week every weekend every week like it's not sustainable for me. And it's very expensive to do it this way. And a lot of people make their money like that. And I want them to make their money because a lot of the people that sit are moms who deserve to eat. And a lot of the women who sit are mothers of teenagers who might be neurodivergent and like they have no help at all. So it's like, I think everyone should get their, get their bread. However, just knowing myself and, and just learning from my teachers it's either like solo journey, right? And that's honestly what I hope and pray more people walk into. Mm-hmm. Everyone's looking for a guide. Everyone's looking for some outside guru answer person. And truly, only you can walk through the doors of your own consciousness. And I know you've probably had your own solo journeys too, but that was 
Ahati Kalindi E's like main shtick was like from the alone into the alone. Mm. And then Ayana, his beautiful spiritual wife was like, oh, and naked, by the way. Like, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Cause I was like, no, I never have done it alone. But as soon as you said naked, I was like, oh no, there was that one time. <laughs> right. Um, because how can you blast through into the multiverse if you got remnants of this world all trapped on you? It's all got heavy energy on it. So, you know, I always really like to suggest that everyone actually has the tools innately within themselves to be able to serve themselves and their best friend and maybe their parent. And the more we can actually develop like a grassroots model for the most basic tenets and principles for space holding in this way, the more people can get help. Medicine is not expensive. You can grow psilocybin under your bed in a shoebox, you know, but if you're not that person, you can also buy it very affordably from someone who does do that. And not, not everyone's a cultivator. So, you know, just remembering medicine is not expensive. The earth is not expensive. It's the packaging. It's the certifications. It's all these levels of hierarchy that tack on this supposed value. So when we sit in these circles, 15 people, sometimes 25, we only sit four times a year because we're moving with the rotation of the sun through the seasons. And each ceremony has within it the influence of the sun cycle Mm. through the sky, Mm. you know, and we can have these touch points for wintering and like really accentuate the wintering energy. And then in the springtime and really accentuate and honor the sun through that, through its life, death, birth, recycle process. And then for those who are ready to step into their role, because that's the medicine of the circle is like, you know, if I'm sitting on this side of the circle, if I'm sitting on the East end, we got someone on the West end, right? Maybe they're going to want to come and start sitting East pretty soon. Maybe they need to sit a few times before they come and sit next to the space holders and they learn some of these songs, but that's what creates the, the uh, sustainability is that, We have these space holders that will continue to sit and everyone becomes a student and everyone can come and learn these songs and everyone can be of service in some way by cooking the food or by tending the fire, by holding the drum or by offering something. And it includes, there's no, I'm the healer and you're like this person who needs to worship me. It's like, we are in circle time and everyone is here to learn and grow. So, um, I've seen people rise up and become space holders by just sitting in circle enough times by slowly being given responsibilities to the point where it's like, yo, can I use the bathroom? And I know the circle's safe with them. So it's, that's the traditional model is this um, like apprenticeship system that's whole and circular. And um, we also hold an entheogen facilitator training twice a year. So if people want to drop in and learn all the shit I know and all the things I wish I had when I first started, like we take 20 students twice a year and we just educate, educate. We push them to do practicums and call the people that, you know, they need to call and like practice. And like we're watching people on a grassroots level heal their family systems. Hmm. Okay. Let's get back to that. Um, but I want to say, I, I love the radical responsibility aspect of from the alone into the alone. 
Ashe. And for sure, so much of what is happening in psychedelic therapy abuse is these power dynamics. It's power dynamics. Whenever there's like these uneven power dynamics, these things mm-hmm. are likely to occur. Yes, um, ma'am. Secondly, I want to say that everyone I know who is growing psilocybin in their closet or under their bed is a mother. For sure. I realize <laughs> like, they're all moms who are like interested in consciousness medicine and need to feed their fucking kids. Uh-huh. Okay. What a beautiful well, web. Yes. What a beautiful web. <laughs> what were we just going to talk about? Oh, um, well, you were talking about power dynamics. So yes. like how- um, Nothing you said. I just, I really, I really do see how when we are visible by our community, we are held greater accountable and that we can always return to the circle to hash it out if we need to. There have been fucked up things happen in medicine circles with indigenous people in the leadership. Uh And so what do we do? Do we do the cancel culture in the background? I mean, I've been victim of it. I'm like, oh, whoop-de-whoop. I was at peyote sit and this person was a bad guy and I haven't talked to him since. And then finally, I just did my own homework during it's called the cosmic gatekeepers training, but like me and my friend Ankara put it together last year. And, um, one of the homework assignments was like, we needed to make a trauma amends. So it was either we write a letter to someone that, you know, we feel had caused a traumatic injury in our consciousness and write to them or read it out loud, but not to them or like go further and speak to them personally. And so I was like, I need to talk to the peyote road man that I was having beef with. And hash it out as a community member to, you know, someone who is a leadership in our community. I'd sang many songs for him in ceremony, Lakota Lullaby being one of them because he's Dakota. And so I was, you know, singing and praying for him, but I hadn't even had the guts to like go to him and say something you did at ceremony, like really rubbed me the wrong way. And I felt like people were put in jeopardy because of that. And you know what he did? I called him and he answered the phone and I said, I need to talk to you about something. And he just sat there and he listened and we talked about it. And then we reconciled. And I was like, wow, I had been missing out on so much continuity in the community because I thought it was easier to gossip than to actually reach out to somebody. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even with this like booze rot stuff going on, these power dynamics and this stuff going on with releasing articles and outing these people still cancel culture. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. I, I have a few friends pretty involved in that world and we've been mm-hmm. having a lot of conversations around all of this and the complexity of, yes, it needs to be addressed. And there are lots of elements of just straight up cancel culture here that aren't helping anything. A hundred percent. Um, I remembered what you had said that I wanted to get into, which is healing family dynamics and the healing that this is bringing into family units. I grew up in a family where adults would drink heavy alcohol at like a little kid's birthday party. So why is that okay? And why is not? us maybe taking a moment to sit for a night and to all take medicine together or one of us take medicine and the family just not be scolding or yelling or blaming them or shaming them for expanding. So these family dynamics um, is where most of the trauma really begins. We can point at all the systems in place and all the pain points of the culture, but really they are lived 
and reinforced through parents and children and aunties and uncle systems. So returning to the circle, right, in these traditions is actually the technology is gathering in medicine space with our family, having a place to do that. That's what these traditional circles would have been. That's the peyote meeting, auntie, uncle, grandma, dad, dog, you know, mom, every, the kids, everybody. So this medicine is for families. It was made for families. It was how families developed over eons. We need a space to come back and heal together and reconcile and to be joyful together and to pray. And that's become church. I have a great friend. She's uh, Charlotte James from the Ancestor Project. And her beloved was, and her are considering having child. And she asked him, would you ever bring our child to ceremony? And he said, well, people bring their kids to church. So, I mean, it's all indoctrination, honestly. It's like, this is my way of the world. And so I want to involve my child in it, you know? And maybe at a time he'll say, no, I don't want that. And that's, that's wonderful. But as you said, all the cultivators, you know, our moms. And when I was sitting in Ayahuasca, Nevada City, there's toddlers and kids and moms. And I'm like, okay. Like I didn't realize kids would be okay here. So honestly, from the jump, I knew. And in the ayahuasca traditions, there are also kids involved. So mm-hmm. healing of family structures, I always like to say psilocybin is not particularly good for depression. It's just in societies where it's integrated, depression doesn't happen. Mm. So it's not particularly good for depression? Uh, yeah. So let's get back into SSRIs now. It's a nuance on on how to say that with our way of looking at living beings, we say, you're good for this. Mm-hmm. Like we look at a plant and we're like, oh, what's it good for? Mm-hmm. Like okay. what a strange way to approach a living being. So yes, it does incredible things. It has amazing actions as a serotonin mimicker in the human brain, which in the depressed brain there is a relationship between lower levels of serotonin and depression. Not to say that an SSRI, which a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor will introduce more serotonin and stop the reuptake process of serotonin. So it's just flooding your body with serotonin pretty much um, and encapsulating it along those neuropathways and and neuroreceptors. But you know, not to say that having that much access to serotonin is going to somehow help your eating disorder or sometimes like help your, um, like manic depressive episodes, but there is a connection between depression and serotonin. And so what's really interesting is that when you have enough serotonin in the body, it has a preventative element. So we come to this really far place and get into the depressive state because of diet, because of these risk factors, even neonatal depression, depression in the mother as experienced through pregnancy has a lasting impact on the fetus 
right? Because it is the presence of serotonin that plays a vital role in not just the communication of mother and baby, but also in the whole implantation process. So if mother is depressed before she's even pregnant, that's going to shift the bioavailability of the baby themselves. And so when I suggest that psilocybin isn't particularly good for these problems is that when there is the presence of the right amount of serotonin, which psilocybin can provide for us in a modulated way, what SSRIs does is it floods the body with a single chemical without the many constituents that help modulate it out, which the body has a really hard time adjusting to. So when psilocybin is a part of the process early on, we just don't see the onset of the depression that we see in the world today. And a lot of people are now clearing up years of depression, eating disorders, anxiety, alcoholism with psilocybin. And because of its amazing healing action, it is helping to balance some of those things. But the truth is, if we had a relationship with psilocybin in the first place, we may not have ever even seen these problems really occur. I am curious about combo. Um, and so mm-hmm. you, let, let's talk about your ebook real quick. It's mm-hmm. Entheogenic Earth Medicine Assisted Motherhood. Imam, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I want to say it now in case, you know, people drop off as a podcast goes farther on, but like any questions anyone's having about safety, about breastfeeding, mm-hmm. about other psychedelics, things that we're mm-hmm. not going to be able to get into in this conversation, it's all there. And of course, I'll link in the show notes. Um, I've recently become aware of Combo, had two sessions. They've been a lot. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what do you think about combo? Because actually I've never done combo before. So it's like, yeah. we wrote about it in the ebook because it's something that people are experiencing and exploring. There mm-hmm. are some things to think about when breastfeeding, but for you, did you feel it was a good match for you as a medicine? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll continue to do it um, infrequently. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a third session. We realized that the first session was on the new moon. Like, I think it was January 1st. And so mm-hmm. she was like, you know, lots of times people do like three sessions within a moon cycle. And I was like, mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah. but I recently had a big womb issue. I had PID, pelvic inflammatory disease. And it's the mm-hmm. fourth time I've had it in 13 years. And, you know, it's an infection of the uterus mm-hmm. and the corresponding mm-hmm. organs and the fear that I go into when I'm there and I just feel so vulnerable and tender mm-hmm. and I just go in bed and cry and cry and cry mm-hmm. and just want to keep myself safe. Just want to wrap up in a little blanket and be safe, safe, safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had done the antibiotics and I had huge heart, like tachycardia from the antibiotics oh and, gosh, yeah. them and then I had to start again. Cause I was like, I think it's back. It was a mess. Oh, this was like all through December. Um, so the first session, you know, when I was asked to speak, whatever I wanted to speak at the beginning. I said, like, I want womb healing and mm-hmm. I want to understand what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I closed my eyes and she started applying the combo to the you know, very surface level burns on my arm that she had made, this ancestral spirit that I've connected to in the past showed up so, mm-hmm. so strong. Mm-hmm. And I've always, she came to me in a dream once and I always associated her with, with the womb and with the yoni. She came to me as a mm-hmm. dove in this dream. Um, but anyway, I, I shook, like I shook mm-hmm. from my pelvis 
throughout Mm -hmm. the whole session. Mm -hmm. And she was there the whole time. And at the end, the practitioner was like, I I felt this like strong female ancestral spirit in here. And I was like, yes, she was here. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, it it really Mm -hmm. did seem to clear it. Like Mm -hmm. the residual stuff that I had going. Mm -hmm. Ashe. And then my second session was not so sweet. And I just barfed Mm -hmm. my brains out and could barely even catch my breath from all the throwing up and then Mm. violently for about 20 minutes afterwards. But again, then afterwards I'm like so clear and having all these realizations. Mm. I, I absolutely love and so appreciate that the healing that you're referring to is certainly not the kind of healing that some people might look at and say, that's something that I want to try myself. Like when people do hape or these medicines that are very purgative, mm-hmm. hape, ayahuasca combo, they like pull substances out. We, and speaking of descending consciousness, like have such a phobia of excrement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like have nowhere to put it, don't know how to integrate it, Mm -hmm. just don't know what to do with express, excess, you know? And that's the technology and the way of healing that some of the most powerful medicines in the world really function is by identifying like where physically this this dis-ease is living and allowing it an exit point. Yep. And then I don't know what happens to all the purge, but I'm sure your practitioner is probably taking that purge and she's digging a hole in the ground. Mm. She's pouring all of that back into the earth to feed her. She's also Mm. looking at it and interpreting what she sees was getting out of my body. Now that's some descending consciousness right there. It's the Mm -hmm. same way of looking at blood. It's the same way as reading menstrual blood. It's the same way as reading our baby's excrement. It's a vital sign. It teaches Mm -hmm. us and it tells us, you know, what's coming out of our body is an indication of what is in our body. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, um, and thank you for bringing up combo because I'm yet to have my combo initiation. I really, I feel like that medicine, and it's funny because ayahuasca was like all around, you know, being talked about, and it took years to really like come and sit, you mm-hmm. know. So it's it's come around. It'll, you know, maybe when I make my way up there sometime, <laughs> I'll end up sitting, you know, with that practitioner. She sounds amazing. But considering just like what is leaving our body is an imprint of what's inside is like we can't really have this motherhood conversation without like the breast milk talk because I. I feel like that's also something that people really are concerned about is the presence of psilocybin in breast milk and like how long that happens. And, you know, breast milk is made of blood, which is just incredible technology. And it's built on the water and the makeup of like our blood, what the chemicals that are in our blood. And so, yes, psilocybin does enter the bloodstream, it does come in. And so does combo, which is why for any child under six months of age, it's asked that, you know, the mother has some milk prepared beforehand because of its powerful purgative property. The combo goes into the blood and we don't really want the baby to be drinking like the toxic, uh, 
the poison of the frog, right? It has a powerful healing property on us. And yet the baby doesn't need a purge. The baby's perfect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when I see babies drink ayahuasca, it's just like nothing happens uh-huh. <laughs> at all. Cause they, they're good. And that's why right. introducing psilocybin so early is like, they don't have this bad trip, like, because they're just, their sensory not- eating channels are already wide fucking open the brain that we have on psilocybin looks like their fucking brain. So, you know, it's like they honestly either don't need it or it's probably just going to enhance the further experience that they have. And also extremely important to consider serotonin type of, you know, uh, tryptamines for folks that are neurodivergent. There have been a lot of pieces of research on autism and LSD in the 1960s and 70s for ways to reconnect, you know, language centers and things like that. And, um, but, you know, it is really important to consider for people that are listening, you know, if they really want to potentially look at psilocybin for postpartum, that the medicine is going into your breast milk and we get to decide what we do with that. You know, like we don't have the hard science on how long exactly, because no one's done that research yet. And I've been really trying to put together like some grant writing to get that kind of research put together because some people need to be legitimized. Like they need these ideas to be legitimized by Western science. And as soon as that does happen, I think it'll become a way more viable option for a lot of people facing postpartum depression. I will say though, is that psilocybin is absorbed and then um, leaves the body at a very quick rate. So it goes in through and is processed through the kidneys and leaves through the urinary tract. And uh, all traces are nearly gone in 24 hours. So it's an incredible medicine also for people like in the military. So I serve a lot of military people and like people that, you know, feel like cannabis is something they would have leaned into, but like can't because they get drug tested all the time. Same Mm -hmm. thing with mothers. It's really ridiculous, but some mothers are still drug tested. And I think that's just hot garbage if the dispensary looks like the Apple store. But, um, you know, I, I really just feel like psilocybin is not only like safe physical levels, right? It doesn't, it doesn't introduce any more serotonin than is already present. It just mimics serotonin. So, you know, actually adding excessive amounts of serotonin into the system And we do know that through some research, psilocin was injected into rats and we found that it did cross the blood brain barrier, but the concentrations of psilocybin and psilocin were much higher in the mother than in the fetus. So the the placenta did a really wonderful job of creating like a nice break between. So, you know, speaking from a place of, I took three grams at six months, like, that was one of the most important touch points to prepare me for the fears I had coming into the birth scene mm-hmm. that I feel like I would have encountered anyway, but I'm glad I got to encounter them ahead of time mm-hmm. than to have to bring them onto the birth stage, you know? Oh, that, so that's making me think of these psilocybin trials with end-of-life patients and how it dramatically decreases their fear of death. I you know, even someone like me who like couldn't wait to give birth, loved it, had a wonderful first birth. I was scared 
going into my second birth 10 years later. No, I, I trusted my body. I really did. But it just, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's a big fucking deal. You know? it's, mm-hmm. Like it's totally normal and okay to be, to have fear around giving birth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, that end of life, it's like every time we go and we eat the mushroom, like we get a glimpse at what death can be like, you know? we have access to the multiple realms and we have these little deaths, you know? And so maybe having more experience within this little death realm, those big deaths become a little bit less scary, you know, and these rites of passage that we undergo on a physical, psychological, somatic level, uh, we have a little bit more practice for. And I think that's the most compassionate thing that we could do for a mother is at least get, and offer uh, a learning ground for preparation. And I always say that, you know, I was so well prepared for the birth experience because of how much, how many times I sat with psilocybin. Yeah, because death, a big psychedelic experience, birth, it is ego dissolving. It is you you drop your story about yourself and you just (laughs) surrender. And sometimes you just got to sit back and watch because you can't control. You can't control always what's happening in the entheogen experience. You know, sometimes like you kind of get to sit in the backseat of your own consciousness and watch your body do things you didn't know. And like, that's, that's kind of the traditions around like possession and things like that is like, you let spirit move through you, you know, and you watch spirit move through you. And what is birth, but a spirit moving through you, mm-hmm. you know? So just taking a backseat, I was surprisingly lucid. Everyone was like, oh, you're going to be in the labor la-la land and you're not going to be able to speak. So you just probably should write stuff down or to like talk to your doula and everything and she can communicate for you. And I'm literally out out there like 10 centimeters talking like I am to you right now. Mm -hmm. So just amazingly, you'd be surprised the more practice you have the more lucid we can be in these big dramatic moments like death. Um, I love the story and I know we're over, but it's like, I love the story that Ayana E tells about Ahati, her husband passing on. So he's a psychonaut, just an amazing African multi, multi uh, universe, multiverse explorer. And I'm talking like 50 grams of dried mushrooms. So Mm. high, high, high doses. And, um, just went out like a G she said. So she's caring for him. He's like not doing too well on the physical. And then he told her, he said, leave the room. And she's like, okay. She just trusted implicitly. She walked out the room and closed the door. And then when it finally hit her, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let him leave like that. She walked in and he already passed. Mm -hmm. So it's like, imagine the level of sovereignty in which we could walk through these fucking gateways Mm -hmm. if we just allowed ourselves to like have that have that level of power and have that level of choice that we are not victims that like we choose every moment of this path and from the birth room how we want baby to go in 
all the times I see women with postpartum depression, there was something that happened in that labor room where they were disempowered, where they felt like their voice wasn't being heard and someone made a decision for them and not with them. And same thing with death. Imagine the level of death trauma that's happening. People not passing on the way that they feel is really just and right for them. There's a lot of people dying right now alone in the hospital. Who wants to give birth alone in the hospital, let alone die in the hospital by themselves? So I just think it really also comes back to not just a motherhood descending consciousness conversation about the way that we descend into this life, but how we descend out of this life and move into the next. Mm-hmm. Um, the author Aldous Huxley had his wife mm-hmm. inject him with LSD a couple hours before his death. Wow. Um, so like this reminds truth. me. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me. I mean, I, I just wish I could know both of their experiences, you know, like, but they're gone. So they can't share them and write them down. But what, what were those last moments like in that transition? And mm. how do they compare? How does the after death state compare to the embodied psychedelic state? I guess we're just going to have to someday. find out ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, but another Instagram post you write, you wrote living people eat dead mushrooms and dead (laughs) mushrooms eat living people or living mushrooms eat dead dead people. Yeah. Yeah, It's from a song. Um, I just think it's a great track, uh, a great line and a great, in a great song. And it's really true. Is that like, this is the cycle. It's like the serpent eating its own tail, you know, and that um, I'm just always reminded like, the sterilized way of dying and accepting death back into the earth with, you know, placing us into these cement boxes and then like asking for life to generate itself. And, and injecting dead bodies with chemicals mm-hmm. to preserve them. They're fucking dead. It's so stupid and so expensive and such big environmental impact. Impact. Yeah. And I'm just like, yo, let these mushrooms eat me. Like I can't wait to go back. And that that's the ancestral realm too, is like, that's the calcium and the phosphorus and the nitrogen. Like that's the, uh, the mineral family that we all return to. And that honestly creates a continuum for our soul to be reabsorbed. And I feel like there is like a gnarly disruption in that when we have these bodies that have not been assimilated and returned back to the mother. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you for verbalizing that. That I have my whole life had a strong aversion to both normal burial or how we bury today and and cremation, even. Mm. I'm always like, put me in the fucking earth. And I'm so glad natural burial is becoming a thing now. Mm-hmm. But I, I hadn't thought about like this soul composting, <laughs> like mm-hmm. full soul completion journey that can be a part of that body going in to the earth. I'm just like, don't burn me like the day after I die. That's a little much, but. (laughs) (laughs) And to, and to, and to each their own. And I think that's, what's so beautiful about this really interesting realm that we're in is like, even Ahati Kalindi is like, you don't ever really die. Like it's like a video game that you just kind of keep getting like reborn into over and over again. And, you know, you learn your lessons and you make these different moves and, but the path is always here, you know, Onkwe Hongkwe and the red road and these ancestral ways are, have been laid down. 
down. And if we want to find them again, like then we continue to walk. And it's like our ancestors been walking, that ground has been paved for us. And that's part of the DNA healing too, is like that gene expression. There is like a, a key code that gets unlocked, you know, as we practice these ways and as we eat these certain foods and we die in these ways. And so, um, and we birth in these ways too. I mean, consider if we have three or four generations of cesarean section in our lineage, like how much harder it is to come back from where we've gone so far out. So it's like the path is there. It's not like I'm a born of a cesarean and I'm a dope person. I'm okay. Like Mm -hmm. I'm all right. My mom's amazing, you know? Um, But she as an immigrant woman, like wasn't even given the tools Mm -hmm. that her mother had and her mother's mother had. So, you know, it's like decolonizing and indigenizing our way is every breath. It's every moment. It's how we birth. It's how we eat. It's how we die. It's how we live. And we could be like a living um, offering for our ancestors that they did not give all that they gave and lived all that they live for us to just forget who we are. It's an honor to them to live a good life. Mm. Um, what's the red road? Oh, um, it's, I, you've heard of the red road before. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad to share. I'm, I'm so blessed by the first nations people of this sacred territory. Um, and I owe them such an honor and service for all that I've been taught and instructed by indigenous people all over the Americas. But in a way, the red road is a way of living this life, is a way of living this path that has been laid down for us by our ancestors, that it was this quote unquote spirituality system, this this beauty way, this um, spiritual path that has been given to us as a gift, this DNA, and you can consider even the red road as being the bloodline. Mm. And as being that like DNA path that we come and find again, this unique signature of the way that we walk that honors the teachings of the indigenous the Aboriginal ancestry of this territory. And so the Red Road for many is a return to these practices and these ways that were attempted to be stripped away and murdered. Take the Indian out of the man, take the Indian out of the woman, take the child from the Indian mother. So, um, I do the red, I walk the red road for my grandmother who maybe would have had a completely different life who knows better or worse, but you know, her mother's mother was living a very different way. And so I walk a red road and many people walk a red road because it is the only way forward. Mm-hmm. And we're coming into a time of great prophecy where these ways are going to need to be shared. And these ways are going to need to be assimilated on a mass scale so that we can reclaim earth and come back to our mother. And it's a matriarchal way, the red road is. And it's 
with the inclusion of the importance of all life, plants, animals, stones, clouds, all the sacred waters, um, that we could not heal in a vacuum, that as we heal, everything else heals and the red road heals all. So um, I just don't see the red road really being honored and indigenous people really being honored within like the framework that's being suggested for how to offer psilocybin. So, you know, I just feel that um, we have to call it in. I've posted about that, you know, it's like, I don't even like going to circles or eating medicine, unless that is like a central part of the conversation is the land that we're walking on, how privileged we are. And just considering how, you know, like these stress factors of gene expression for prenatal depression includes poverty, single and teen parenting, domestic violence, stress, you know, and how that is felt disproportionately among the Native American community and the Black community and the poor community. So it's like, how can we even talk about psychedelic renaissance and psychedelic healing without considering the ways that Indigenous people need to be reconnected and steward and help and ally with the reconnection of Indigenous people to their Indigenous ways, which includes sometimes the use of plant medicine throughout the gestation. So like using peyote as a way to increase breast milk or increase the uh, strength of the, um, of the, um, the cord, the, um, the placental cord. So, um, you know, these are old school ways that I know were probably foundational pieces of justification for removing children from their families. Oh, their mother is eating these plants. This is dangerous. We should get these kids out of here. So a big part of the red road walking is like coming back to these medicines because they likely were part of the reasoning for destroying Native American people's family structures on this territory and probably in Mexico and in South America as well. And these are still schedule one, highly illegal substances, most of what we're talking about now. And so there is still, I'm sure, a fear among many people listening who might feel called. (sighs) Fuck that. (laughs) I know. It's just like. uh, And remember our humanity and humanness and like, you know, the laws are starting to shift and. It's bringing these good stories, though, that is part Mm -hmm. of the grassroots level of the work for which this is what cannabis was kind of navigating in the early 2000s. You know, we're talking about mom smoke weed and oh, look, these kids with autism can take syringes of CBD and THC, Charlotte's Web. Like, you know, so there were so many stories that made this larger overarching and like unrefutable cry that cannabis needed to come back, mm-hmm. you know, and that the people needed to come back to cannabis. And right now it's psilocybin's time right now, like more than ever, like everyone is pouncing on this and we really have so much to learn from, from the way that cannabis moved through cannabis made such a big sacrifice for us that we can, you know, call on, you know, our delivery service and have cannabis like brought to our doorstep, but at what cost, 
you know, that there's still people incarcerated because of it. And like, I pray and I know, like, I've had to talk to my partner about this just in my advocacy work that is like, I have a family, I have a son. I don't like to put my last name out there, you know, for obvious reasons. And it's like, because of these legal restrictions, but that red road, like that call of the drum, I don't know if you know this song, but like, I hear the voice of my grandmother's calling me. It's just like, it just says, stand in your power, woman, stand in your power, teach them, teach them. And that calls way stronger than any fear that I have about what the fuck could happen to me because of advocacy work in this space. So, um, you know, it's for the mothers, it's for the grandmothers, it's all for our great grandmommies, it's all for the the abuelitas, and it's all for the people that had their lands taken, and it's for all the people, it's for all the people that had their life ways completely radically changed against the way of nature, out of nature, out of the flow of life, that the flow of life is way stronger than the force against it, and that's just period. So, you know, um, you're right, it is schedule one. But those man-made laws are temporary as the empire who created them. Um, There's no time limit, first of all. You keep saying things that would be like an amazing place to end, but but I don't want to end. And I really especially would like to talk about one thing that we haven't yet, which is your work. And I have been deeply moved by your posts about beauty healing. Mm. I mean, you know, the, get right to the heart of every person, especially every female watching, listening, paying attention. Yeah, just how, what messages did you grow up with and when did you start to turn those around and where are you at now with all of it? And I really like um, talking about body hair, especially. Hey, um, <laughs> so it's funny because I did mention like my first journey, like I did what now we call like mirror work, like all this shit became work. Oh, shadow work, like mm-hmm. mirror work, you know, and it all like got specializations. And now like people specialize in shadow work and whatever, which is great. Um, but the first time I, yeah, I ate the mushroom. I mean, I was an avid hair straightener, avid, avid, avid hair straightener. Um, I wore like foundation, two shades, too light, you know, I, um, hmm. Now that you have me thinking, so I looked really different uh, growing up always, uh, being a biracial person. I have white family. (laughs) They're beautiful. They're German and Italian, blue eyes, blonde hair, straight, (laughs) perfect skin, all of that. And I used to hang out with them. And like from the products that they would use to the way that they would smell to the clothes that they could fit in and their bone structure and everything was just different. And I actually utilized that as like my model for how I felt like I needed to look. And so I went on that journey to become my white cousin. And that was really damaging in every way and got kind of thrown in my face a little bit. And, um, you know, I changed my name a few times and just really tried on different avatars, avatar after avatar. And some people talk about like, sometimes reincarnation is so necessary in people that it happens multiple times in a single lifetime. So I just felt like just with this regeneration process over and over and almost felt like a bit feverish. I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know who I am. 
And a lot of people end up like that until they really feel comfortable with who they become and who they are becoming and who they were meant to be, who they're creating. And so uh, I ended up going to Catholic school. So I always grew up in the church and I ended up going to Catholic school. And when I entered Catholic school, I had like side sweat bangs, black rim glasses, crazy ass hair, kind of like emo-y, had always been living in my feelings. Um, my parents were addicted. They're both alcoholics. My dad was addicted to cocaine. And I don't think we lived in a house for more than two years at a time. And I'd been um, molested by my grandfather from age six to age 10. And so I had a lot of confusion about my relationship to my body and family and who I love and what love was and, you know, how, what my value was. And so I came into Catholic school, like kind of myself and it all like, <sighs> you're ugly. Ew. You know, why are you dressed like that? Why do your hair look like that? I would like leave the lunchroom and I'd have like forks in my hair sometimes. And I'm like, dude, I just would eat in the bathroom or like go sit in the library and read or whatever. Just try to avoid social interactions at any fucking point. And then um, a switch came on and I was like, well, maybe if I look like them, like they will bully me less. So I straightened my hair and I like wore my really light, you know, it's the same thing with my family too. I got called McCave woman a lot because <laughs> my hair was always so wild and so, you know, I guess I just did what my ancestors did was like, because the, the discrimination and because of the bad mouthing was so gnarly, just like fucking whiteify yourself, just assimilate and survive. That's what my dad did. So he changed his name at age seven, I found out. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it happened even earlier for him where he felt he had to anglify his name. So I anglified myself and I always wore my hair straight so much. I just destroyed my fucking curls and yeah, I shaved everything. Um, I always, I shaved my upper lip and, you know, just tried everything to just look the part in a rich white neighborhood under the, the guise of Catholicism, which I didn't realize was like part of my ancestral handling was getting kicked out of that school. I got mm -hmm. kicked out. They kicked me out when I was 13, right before my dad died. My dad had pancreatic cancer and they kicked me out of school and I was pretty fucking lost. Um, and man, the path into entheogens, I don't think I really found my beauty until after I found entheogens because I had the mascara and the eyeliner and all this shit on my face. And, you know, I was drinking and hanging out with frat guys and I was like giving myself to whoever. It was just a mess. And looking for that reflection, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. It's okay. Like, you're beautiful. No one, even my mom, I mean, like, she was like, why are you wearing that? She was always very proper. And she's like, why are you wearing that? I think it really starts with our moms too, is just like how we present ourselves and, oh, your hair is really unkempt. Like even my, my fiance said that about our son. Oh, his hair looks unkempt today. And I'm like, he's two and he has long curly hair. Like, don't you dare try to like put that on him like that. Unkempt to who? Not unkempt to me. That's just what our hair looks like. So um, I found LSD that night on a mountain and I took mushrooms and I cried all my mascara off my face. And I 
ate mushrooms enough times that I was like, just stopped putting on the mascara. Like it just didn't make any sense to put something on my face that I knew it was going to immediately come off. And she fucking stripped me clean. She was like, you don't need to put stuff on your face. Just, just come, come out, like demask, disarm yourself. This is all fake shit anyway. Like, this is a way for you to protect yourself that's always what that costume had always been was because I was scared of being myself. I also, and all the while wearing all this shit on me, I was massively socially anxious. Mm -hmm. And so there was a connection because I had to show face all the time that if anyone even saw who I really was, or if I let off a little bit of who I really was like, my whole, the whole house of cards would come down and that anxiety like forced me into places to be with people that I never had any business being around anyway. It wasn't that I was wrong. There's something wrong with me. It's just that I was around the wrong people and they were making me feel very unsafe. And so after a while, mushrooms just kind of forced me into solitude. So after I sat in front of that mirror the first time and all that mascara came <coughs> off, I was like, you're beautiful and you're an artist and artists just need to look like the way that they feel good. And so I um, committed to that natural beauty path and I went on my dreadlock journey. And as a journey, I had always in my heart of hearts wanted to go on. But my mom told me Jamaican people hide spirits in their hair and there's demons in dreadlocks because she doesn't understand anything about Afro-Caribbean culture because she's a she's European from Italy. And that's fine. But that's what her colonization handed down to her. And so, you know, dreadlocks are found in <laughs> India. Dreadlocks are found in India. Dreadlocks are found in Ireland. Dreadlocks are found even here among Native American tribes in North America. So it's like dreadlocks are ancestral to so many regions of the world. And yet somehow they get associated with like blackness and like enslaved Africans and like Rastafarians and like this dirtiness. And yet they are a way of sealing our energy to ourselves. And so, um, you know, I, when I grew my dreadlocks out and that was a big step forward in my decolonizing my beauty way was like, mom, like I need to embrace this. My dad has passed on. I have no way of connecting here. I have no black, black aunties, Black. I have one black auntie and she's far and my mom hates her. So it's like, I don't even have that reflection around me to help like curate this, this way. And so I went on my lock journey and my mom would call me, oh, when are you going to get those locks out of your hair? Like, when are you going to take that out? And I'm just like, yo, I'm feeling zero support from you. I love you, but damn, like, can you just let me be me? And, um, I think that's just teenagers and moms and like the power dynamic and trusting our littles to know what they need. So, um, I started getting my septum pierced. I pierced my lip, like I got all these tattoos and tattooed. My hands was a really hard one. Cause she was like, you're never gonna, Oh no, no one's gonna hire you. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, if they can't deal with that, like they can't deal with me. 
So, um, yeah, I just started to recognize how my BO was worse when I shaved my armpits. I was always itching, like everything in my body. Like, why are razor bumps normalized? I'm like, that shit ain't normal. Like, why is scratching with a hairbrush, like, you know, trying to fucking contain like the pain of shaving Mm-hmm. something that really needs to be wild. So this is part of the dark feminine as well as like this untamed wild animal being that we get to live in the body of and allowing that to express itself in its divine avatar. So um yes, part of this beauty way is like less products, more like allowing my body to produce what it wants to produce. I don't need to hide what's here. It's like, what's here is a reflection of what's inside. My excrement's a reflection of what's inside. And I'm happy and I'm whole and I'm sacred. And the mushrooms taught me that I'm valuable and good. So whatever comes out of that is, I just brought my attention more inward finally and realized the beauty was going to come from there. Um, I mean, you're radiant. <laughs> you're so beautiful. <laughs> and I, I saw those photos of your father. He is very beautiful man as well. Ashe, Ashe. As well. <laughs> um, the, the body hair thing is so interesting to me because it, it's this never ending game, right? You're, you're mm. money into these plastic products. And I, you know, I've spent years shaving and I don't know, maybe I will again someday. And so seriously, no shade, no hate, but the, the wasted time and energy mm-hmm. and all the plastic going into the landfill for something that clearly wants to be there, that mm-hmm. has a purpose, that there are these traditions that that say, and of course it makes sense that, you know, these hairs are a, an extension of your nervous system. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the legacy and the history of the desire to destroy body hair is absolutely rooted in racism and honestly binary like gendering is Mm -hmm. like because most of us if we let our hair grow some of us rock a mustache and a unibrow and have a little hairs down on the chin area and things like that and you know when like completely nude and naked like we start looking a little bit like um like intersex even asexual like we are unified in our human body a little bit more like men and men are okay to have underarm hair but women aren't but if women had underarm hair we'd be more closely associated with men because we share similar hair patterns Mm. same thing with the pub the pubic hair Mm -hmm. and same thing with the leg hair so it's like we're um the, the colonization pattern really tried to do its best to design uh, polar opposites in the way that gender and the body expresses itself. And yet for our ancestors, like queerness, gender queerness, fluidity, what arises out of pure expression is way more complicated than just this is a male body and this is a female body. So um, this racism around, you know, um, body hair is really beneficial if you don't wear clothes. It protects your areas, even Mm -hmm. the bushy eyebrows and the mustache. But if you're from Europe, where clothing is essential, right? That becomes what's um, considered, I, I guess, in a way like 
civilized. You're civilized if you wear clothes. You're not civilized if you don't wear clothes. So it makes sense. Like you shave in your body hair and stuff because you got your covers on. But like if you're living in sub-Saharan Africa or in South America where you have body hair to help, you know, navigate and negotiate space, like it's it's very beneficial to have those things. So it's just amazing how one way, one region's way of viewing what's good for them has now become a coverall for which the rest of the entire world must ascribe. And they become the, the pacemakers and the step callers for the way all of us have to rock in the world. And so decolonizing and indigenizing our beauty ways to just ask the question, like, how, what pace did we walk and what ways did we step and what did we look like before that overculture kind of came through and made its mark on us? So um, thank you for bringing into the conversation, the sustainability problem of chasing body hair, a thing that really just wants to be and is just there to serve. And at a certain point, it stops growing, you guys. I don't know if you guys noticed, but if you let your arm hair go, it doesn't grow like the hair on your head. It doesn't just like go to your wrists. <laughs> Although I would love to see something like that. So I think there's just a lot of fear of the untamed body, same way that there is a fear of the untamed planet and all its wild trees and all of its wild, mm -hmm. untouched, mm -hmm. uncolonized forests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, not to mention the like infantilizing of women shaving their pubic area and the what that does to heterosexual men's brains and attractions. Um, but another interesting piece of this conversation is the the corporate piece. So I think it was in the 1910s that I forget which razor company it was, it was like Gillette or one of the ones that are still around today. We're like hey, you know, we could make twice as much money selling razors if we tell women that their body hair is disgusting. And they did that. They, they went on these big, you can look these up and see these ads. They're horrific. Like, ew, look at her with leg hair. You know, they're just meant to completely shame women for their bodies. Mm. I get asked sometimes, like, what products do you use? Like, what's your, you know, and I think that's so, even like the world, like the, the healthy greenwash world is even still driven very much by capitalism. Like as soon as I saw like a vegan burger, like at a fast food restaurant, I was like, this is all some fake shit. So, um, you know, the truth is, is like any beauty that's driven by capital consumption is rooted in capital consumption and marketing, <laughs> even the healthy natural green stuff. So the beauty is, is that your body knows exactly what to do when given the right things inside and it needs very few things on, you know, a little rose water spray, maybe on the face to, to cleanse and clear and all of that, you know, even people ask, oh, what do you use for your menstrual? Like, you know, hygiene. My son uses cloth diapers. I just use this cloth diaper insert, like his pre-folds and mm -hmm. I just fold it up and I don't really even like putting anything inside myself anymore. No. So I'm great. I'm grateful to through yoni steaming and mushroom work to like have a cycle that is manageable. And this was me like with tons of, you know, hormonal acne on birth control at age 12, like month long periods. And now it's like, I barely use a cloth pad anymore. So what a, what a revelation, like what a gift of plant medicine is not just for your mind. 
the emotions, but it's like, it really impacts the entire network of the microorganisms that run the inside and the outside of your body and helps us recognize that we're just here to facilitate this great symphony of microorganisms that are hyper-intelligent. And it's just a return to this mycelial web under our feet is like, if we just let Pachamamita take care of herself and just facilitate it by asking her what she wants, like everything else is, is gravy. So, um, I didn't know that Gillette just told people that they were ugly and disgusting, but it also shows up in today's marketing. It shows up in today's kids and the way that they talk to each other. They're just walking commercials, these little ones. So um, it really, it really is decolonial and indigenizing to receive wisdom and information from within. And these mushrooms are so counterculture because they give us a moment to just look in and to get the message from inside instead of from outside in. And especially during these times, (laughs) especially during these times where there's a lot of information coming from the outside in, like attempting to sink its teeth into our subconscious mind. Um, During COVID, so many people couldn't go out. So a lot of people went in and I'm really glad because that was the exact response that we really needed out of some people is to wake up to what the fuck is going on from on the inside level and not try to trust and absorb what was coming from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you. This is part of the evolutionary step and the evolutionary step forward is with mothers and family systems, you know, and with teenagers and young people. And we are facing really interesting changing changing of the tides and so we're gonna need our most magical (laughs) our most intelligent our most creative minds at the helm to really guide you know what we do next and I really trust this medicine with my pregnancy and I trust this medicine with my gestation and took large grams and just know like that in the breast milk all Martin was getting was the highest benefit synthesized through the intelligence of my blood, then filtered further into breast milk and then delivered to him in the best way to suit his needs. And that's just how the body and the mushrooms really work. So, you know, I, um, this is such a necessary and important conversation. So I just want to thank you for letting us and really encouraging us to dive deep into the many cavernous ways that, you know, this plant medicine motherhood really shows up because it is, multifaceted from the way that we call ourselves beautiful to the way that we care for our communities you know um we are the the pacemakers here and it's finally time to turn back to the mama and ask her you know what she thinks about what's going on i'm going to tie this into something my teacher cammy mcbride said i think on her first interview on this episode we both have teenagers and i mean you know, we all know about, about teenagers and, (laughs) and how they're influenced by the overculture and how they don't want to hear what their parents are saying. She said, I do the work I do to change the culture so that the culture can then turn around and be what I want for my son. Cause he's not taking it straight from me. Ashe. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Michaela. I, I could keep going, but it has been two hours plus the extra 20 minutes we talked at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> I, I will say 
people check out Michaela's Instagram to learn more about her birth control journey and becoming coming back into alignment with herself and cycles. And please tell folks where they can find your ebook, where they can find more about you, what you offer, and then about um, this Kickstarter as well. Yes, absolutely. So um, you can find my Instagram at mama de la Miko, M-Y-C-O, Mother of the Mushroom. And then you can find the ebook, the Entheogenic Earth Medicine Assistive Motherhood Guide. It's on mysticjasper.com. And um, we are offering something sweet to the Patreon folks. Um, I have two guided rituals on there that I offer. One ceremonial drinking psilocybin um, walkthrough and the tradition that I um I honestly offer at all my circles. So if you sat in a circle, that's exactly what you would see. So you could learn that yourself and learn how to sit for yourself in that way. And then the other is the Yoni steaming and the Ma'at tradition that I learned through my lineage and um, what a blessing it is to be able to share that with you all. Um, I just love to share education. So as Amber said, you know, um, my TikTok is Mama Delamico and my Instagram as well. So it's like, there's always education just flooding forward. Whatever comes up is usually what I post. I don't plan any of this out. It's just like, what's fresh. So um, thank you for touching in with some free education in that way. There's a couple different guides. There is a natural birth control guide as well on mysticjasper.com and a microdosing guide as well. And I really wanted to bring some attention to a dear sister of mine named Georgina Bailey, who is a, a neuro a neurotypical uh, woman living in New York. She goes by Microdose NYC. She just created a book called uh, Mental Health, Magic Mushrooms and Pregnancy, from which I derive so much great information for my ebook. So that is the source code on a lot of the neuroscience that um, I was able to pull forward for not just this discussion, but discussions later. And um, she is running a Kickstarter campaign to begin an ebook for teenagers. And what SSRIs and psilocybin can do to help teenagers. And that really is like this kind of landing point is if we normalize for mothers, how can we not normalize for our kids? So um, we want more good education coming out. We really want to impress upon the scientific community that um, we deserve a voice within this scientific space and that we already know through our teachers and our models and our ancient ways um, how beneficial these medicines are for us. And yet we know that on masks, we have to change the culture by really speaking loudly in a way that they cannot ignore. And this podcast is definitely a part of that. So um, we are looking to crowdfund for that project as well and many other great projects coming from her. So uh, that's Georgina Bailey, Microdose NYC. And um, thank you, Amber. I've been a huge just avid listener of this podcast for many years and to be here is my ancestors greatest dream so thank you so much for having me oh thank you Michaela you've <clears throat> opened my mind and my heart in so many ways and like the mycelial connect just made me understand things in a way I haven't before and make connections between things uh, my heart is really behind this Kickstarter project. I recently did some Instagram stories about teens and mental health, specifically mm. through COVID, and got such a response. And mm. I have such a charge around, you know, wanting these kids to be okay. And so mm -hmm. I'm so grateful 
that that she's doing that and that we can link people to that Kickstarter and hopefully fund her project. And um, I just can't wait to keep watching what you do. I love your fucking reels. You make the best reels and I can tell they're authentic. And like, you know, you're not like planning out your content at the beginning of the month, which I don't do either. Um, I'm sad we're ending, but thank you so much. And it, it's not an end. It's only the beginning, just like death. Um, and the mushrooms told us that. So thank you for everything. I cannot wait to meet you and your beloved in person. And um, just let's just stay connected with this mushroom link for forever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Hey, y'all. I want to share a little bit more about this Kickstarter. So when you click on the link in the show notes, it will say across the top, mental health, magic mushrooms, and pregnancy. And that is one of the books that Georgina is funding through this Kickstarter. But since we talked about the teens in the conversation with Michaela, I want to make sure if you scroll down a little bit, if you pledge $15 or more, you will get a second book, Mental Health, Magic Mushrooms, and Teens. So she writes, the pandemic added to the pre-existing challenges that America's youth faced. It disrupted the lives of children and adolescents, such as in-person schooling, in-person social opportunities with peers and mentors, access to healthcare and social services, food, housing, and the health of their caregivers. In a changing world, what are the implications for our teenagers? What's the science behind the teenage brain and SSRIs? Results from the 2019 Youth Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System show that 18.8% of high school students seriously considered attempting suicide and 8.9% actually attempted. What do we know about the maturation of the human brain during adolescence? We will explore all that in mental health, magic mushrooms, and teenagers. As I said, y'all, this is just so close to my heart, having a teenage daughter who is doing pretty well herself, but I am seeing just some tragic shit among her friends and in our wider community, and it's not okay. And so if you feel at all called to this 15 bucks and you'll get both books when they are published, if this Kickstarter gets back, do you know how it works? Right now, the goal is $9,300, and they have 1,461 pledged, so there's a way to go. Um, Please check out the link in the show notes if you are called. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with 
both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning, and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M A R I E E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.